Hopefully we'll get that service improved here some way. Well, the last two weeks we've been going through uh, some scriptures to show how much God wants mankind to be a part of his kingdom and to live forever and eternity. Uh, I think it's good for us to review that focus and our purpose on life or in life and why God has put us here, uh, lest we lose sight and get bogged down with trials, troubles, and tribulations and various difficulties that might come up. But we know we have to do our part, not just give God lip service, but to worship Him with all our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls, and to put Him first in everything that we do. And it helps us to do that if we keep focused on our purpose and why He has us here and what He's working out. And we have to realize that not only do we have our human nature against us, but we have Satan and his demons uh, who are trying to stop us, who are trying to prevent us in any way uh, they can. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wicked beings in high places. So much of the trouble that we go through and a lot of the trouble we are going through right now uh, is coming at us from Satan and his demons, and I firmly believe that because he is the author of confusion and of rebellion. He is the author of, of uh, a lot of things that are going on. Those things do not come of God. The attitudes that are there do not come of God. Forgiveness, mercy, kindness, patience are of God, and we must keep that in mind and be sure that we don't buy into some of the attitudes that others have, uh, both here and afar. Uh, but be sure that we stay close to God, and that we are motivated by His Spirit and have the same reactions He would have. And that is not easy, because we're human, and it's easy to have our own reactions, which come from the flesh. But we've been examining Christ here in the book of Hebrews, and how he was made a little lower than the angels, or for a little while lower or inferior to the angels, that he might set an example of no sin, uh, and therefore be worth all of our lives put together, and his lack of sin is big enough to cover all our sin. So we, we left off in about verse 10 of chapter 2, I believe, last week, where he's saying that, uh, he is bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So while Christ was perfect in conduct, he did not fully grasp, apparently, what it's like to truly be a human being. He had created human beings. He had created the human mind and knew that it was by nature contrary to God but he had not actually lived what a human being goes through. So even though he was perfect in conduct, it does not mean that he understood everything that you and I face. Not fully. So he had to come and be made perfect through suffering. I think that's mentioned again in chapter 4. I'll, I'll skip ahead to that. In verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, 
but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So, he suffered in this flesh. He was a man of sorrows. And he had every temptation that you and I have, and every temptation that any man or woman has ever had. Uh, and they were very real temptations, very real desires to sin, whatever they may, whatever direction they may have gone. There are people who deny that, to say, well, he couldn't have been tempted like we are. Uh, well, why couldn't he? <laughs> if there was no temptation, there's no resistance. If there's no resistance, then it's easy not to sin. The Father in heaven doesn't sin, and the Son don't sin. Now, uh, they are made, they are perfect, and have been, and they live by their own rules perfectly. But they are not even tempted to sin, because they, their thoughts are always upward and good and positive. But while Christ was here, he was a human, and he was tempted to sin every day that went by. And that's the beauty of the whole thing, is that he had the same temptation you and I do, but he never gave in. But he came to understand more through those temptations and sufferings. And it is even said a little further on that he can be a wonderful high priest to us because he has suffered what we have suffered. For both, verse 11, he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified, that is, set apart. See, he was set apart for a holy purpose, and we are set apart for a holy purpose as well. He was set here to, having given up God, or being God, he was set here to again become God. Just as we are set here to become God. Same goal and purpose he had when he was here that you and I have. Now he succeeded in that he never gave him to sin, and therefore is at the right hand of God. So he was sanctified, and we are also sanctified for the same purpose, to become God, to become the very bride of Christ. Kind begets kind, and like begets like. And if we are now begotten to be born into the kingdom of God, then we are here to be born as God, just as Christ went back to being God, having given it up. So he is the captain of our salvation because he's gone ahead and he is back at the throne of God, which is where we're headed. So he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Because of his sacrifice and the forgiveness that comes to us, he's not ashamed to call you and me his brothers, his sisters in Christ. That's pretty good to be included in that family uh, as God, potentially, and that's what we're here to be. To a lot of people, that's blasphemy, but I think we've understood for a long, long time that we weren't made to become angels. We were made to become God beings, to marry a God being. So he's not ashamed. He says, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise to you. So that's quoted from the Psalms, chapter 22. Uh, Christ is 
ready to stand up and sing to everybody that we are his brothers. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I am the children which God has given me. So, those are all prophecies of Christ. That one about I and the children which God has given me is an end-time prophecy in Isaiah 8, when the beast power is about to come down the Assyrian army on this nation. And it's speaking of Christ and those who have been given to him, but it's also spoken to the human leadership and the children that have been given to it, because it immediately says then not to fear and not to listen to the demons and those that whisper and mutter and peep, uh, uh, so that we can fear God and not man. So there are several applications to that, but the highest and best, of course, is Christ himself and the children that are given to him. Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Some people try to say, well, he was just he was just God walking around down here. No, he was flesh. Says so right here. He became flesh also. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So, how is the devil defeated? Through death and then resurrection. Because Satan wants to kill us all, but, and, and he's going to kill, and has killed a lot of people, but he's going to kill most of the population of the earth here in the next few years. But death is swallowed up in victory when God resurrects, 1 Corinthians 15. So God can defeat Satan through the resurrection. And so through his death, it makes it possible for us to be resurrected. Our sins can be forgiven through his death, and then we can be resurrected, and that gets rid of the power of the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Have we not been in bondage all of our lives? Bondage to our human nature? Bondage to our own fears and phobias and depressions and frustrations? And... Just being human is in itself bondage. We're bound in this flesh, bound in this fleshly mind, except as we escape it through the power of God's Spirit in our mind, which can elevate our thoughts. But we have to get out of this bondage, and he, is, he came to free us from the bondage of being human and to be given eternal life with different minds that won't be hard to live with. Your mind and mine are hard to live with, but then they won't be. For truly he took not on him the nature of angels. He didn't just become an angel on the earth, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, a human being. He wasn't half God and half man. Uh, he was a human being with the Spirit of God. Wherefore, wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like to his brethren. So he had to have been completely human to be in all things like his brothers. That's you and me. Uh, people say, well, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, so he was half spirit. No, he was human. 
that seed that was planted in Mary, uh, a human woman, conceived and brought forth a human baby and made an all point like his brethren. How, how, could, how could you say his life was worth all of our lives and our sins if he were half God while he was here? He wouldn't have been tempted in quite the same way you and I have been because he would have been still half God, whatever that means. I don't know which end. Or which half, <laughs> but uh, if he were half God, that would have made his job a lot easier than yours and mine. But no, he was tempted in all points the same way we are. And he was made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So he became our mediator when he went back to his father's throne. And he said, Father, uh, we created them and we knew what they were like, but having been there, I have more mercy, I have more compassion, more feeling for them and what they're going through than I did before I went down there. So he can plead our case with the father in a very real way. So he is a very merciful and faithful high priest. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or nourish them that are tempted. So when we're tempted, we have to go to God. We have to pray for strength and courage. Do you think he was not tempted to back off when he was ready to be killed? He didn't want to go through that. He knew how horrible it would be. He'd read all the prophecies in the Psalms and Isaiah and so on about himself and what he would go through. And he knew it was not going to be easy. But he knew that he would be on that stake forsaken of the Father. But he would be all alone, all by himself. And he said, you've not sweated blood yet in resistance to sin. But that night when he was out praying, he wasn't even close to going to sleep. But the disciples couldn't go an hour without going to sleep on him. They said they loved him, but they didn't love him as much as they thought they did. So he's able to strengthen us and nourish us because he's been through everything that we've been through and more. Chapter 3 then, Wherefore, holy brethren, because of what he went through and the fact that he is there now as our high priest, uh, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Emmanuel. Just consider him. So let's consider him. Paul goes through and, and gives consideration here. Christ Emmanuel, who was faithful to him, but appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So he, he compares the house of Moses to the faithfulness of Christ. Moses was faithful. He made some mistakes that Christ didn't make, but he turned out to be a very, very faithful servant of God. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has builded the house has more honor than the house. So 
So God had built the house of Moses, had worked through Moses, and built the house of, of people that went with Moses. And, of course, Christ was the one who led them through the Red Sea and fed the manna and gave them water. He was the one that did everything for them, so he's the one that built that house. So he's pointing out how much higher Christ is than Moses. That's what the transfiguration was about, to show the disciples that Christ was higher than Moses and Elijah, and that they were to listen, first of all, to Christ. Well, why? Because the Jews looked upon Moses and upon Abraham as their fathers, and equated physical lineage to those leaders as righteousness, instead of following the teachings of Christ himself. So he had to show them, hey, the Jews are wrong. You put God first. You put Christ first. Verse 6, But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence of the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So he built a physical house in Moses, physical Israelites, uh, who rebelled and turned away, and many had their carcasses die in the desert. But he says, now you're not of the house of Moses, you are the house of Christ. That is, if you hold fast. Now notice what he says to hold fast to. Confidence and the rejoicing of the hope. We are to become confident that we will be in the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes our hope is diminished when we have difficulties and we have sins and temptations and all kinds of problems, and we think, how could I ever be there? And that, in part, is a good attitude, because we have to have the attitude of the publican who realized he was in no wise comparable to God or worthy of coming before God, because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we have to have the meekness and the humility of realizing how weak and small we are, yet at the same time having hope and confidence in God that he can help us rise above what we are. So we are to move forth in confidence. We're not to be whiners before God. We'll see that a little later on. We are not to be begging from a negative standpoint, if you will. How is it faith in God and Christ's sacrifice for our sins and his resurrection if we're constantly before going before God, whining and mewling and, and laying on our back like a dog? Uh, how can you grow? How can you overcome if you're just constantly thinking about your own faults and problems. We have to be focused on God and what He can do instead of on ourselves, which is discouraging. So a lot of our discouragement comes from having our mind on ourselves, our own lacks and faults. So we have to look to Him who was faultless and realize He's the captain of our salvation, and if we will just respond, he'll get us there. He wants us there. 
So he says, to have confidence and the rejoicing of the, of the hope firm. Now, what are the three greatest things? Love, faith, and hope. Love being the greatest, but faith and hope are not diminished. We must have faith and trust in God that he will see us through. And our obedience and our service to him and his people is based on that faith that it will do some good. But our faith is not in vain. But we trust God because He know, we know he will see us through. And that gives us great hope. Hope in Christ. Hope in the Father. So we're to rejoice in that hope firmly. Not a wishful hoping for, or I wish I could, or I wish I would, or I know I'll never make it. Why would God want me? Well, if you want to focus on why would God want me, you'll be discouraged and frustrated. Because there's no reason, if I look at myself and you look at yourself, why God would want you or me. Well, you know why he wants us? Because we're his children. And he made us. And he loves us. And he wants us to succeed. That's why I entitled this, God's Attitude Toward Us. Because we need to comprehend that there is hope of the glory that is ahead, and it is to be a firm hope. We focus on him and what he did and the fact that his life was greater than ours and he is willing to forgive us constantly. Seven times seventy, he said, is a beginning. And one day, how many times do you and I sin against God in one day? I, I don't even know how to count it. But I know that within each one of us, there is always the potential thing of even the thought of lost vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy, those human characteristics that are anti-God. And undoubtedly, every one of us, every day, falls short of the glory of God in some selfish thought or act. That in itself is a sin. When we're supposed to put God first, we put ourselves first. That's idolatry. Do you think you can go through a day without committing idolatry? I doubt if I ever have. I doubt I've made it through one day without idolatry, putting myself in some way above either God or my brethren, which I'm not supposed to do. So we have the continual sacrifice of Christ to cover our sins, and we need to take hope in that. Verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation and the day of temptation and the wilderness. What would it have taken to have said, Well, God brought us out of Mitzrayim. He delivered us from Pharaoh. He brought us across the Red Sea. He must be on our side. I'm sure he'll give us water. But they hardened their heart immediately. Well, he brought us out here to die. He won't give us any water. Do you think he brought us out here to succeed or to die? 
We better believe he brought us out here to succeed. This is a calling that he gave us to come out of the city and go dwell in the wilderness and prepare a place for his people. Now, are we going to succeed in that or not? We better believe we are. We better be praying to God to give us the help we need to accomplish that. Because there are people right now who, if they had hold of this land, would sell it. They've lost sight of why we're here. Do you know why you're here? Are you here to save your ugly hide? Or are you here to serve God? We need to understand that. Now, I'm not calling everybody ugly, but compared to God, we're pretty ugly. <laughs> he called us for a purpose, and we need to be sure we hold hope firm that he will do that and not harden our hearts and think, well, God's abandoned us. God's going to forget us. God's going to let us die. No, he makes all kinds of promises in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that if we'll remain firm, he'll take care of us. He'll deliver us. Do you believe it? We better move. We better believe it and move forward in faith. Well, they hardened their hearts, though. Well, God must have. He must not have us in mind. He brought us out here to die. So uh, let's rebel against Moses. <coughs> they lost sight of everything that God had done for them. So don't harden your hearts. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Had they seen God's hand? Miraculously, incredibly, yes. Had they seen the manna, the water, the, the quail? They'd seen all those things. And yet... The minute, Satan, uh, the minute Moses turned his back, they were creating golden idols. So he said he was grieved. They didn't have their hearts right. <coughs> they just didn't believe that God could save them. He brought them to the edge of the promised land. Sent, what, 12 spies into the land. Ten came back and said, ah, we can't do this. Those guys are big and there's lots of them. <laughs> so let's just stay out here in the desert. Let's don't even try to go in there where the grapes are so big you can't carry one. <laughs> Two said, we can do it. Two out of ten said, we can do it. Or ten to two out of twelve. Caleb and Joshua. And they were the only ones of that generation that went into the promised land. Even Moses, as close a friend of God as he was, was denied because he had struck the rock. When God had said, speak, he struck. He's going to be in God's kingdom. But he didn't go into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb, especially Joshua, were the ones who led them in because they had said, this can be done. So let's believe that God brought us out here and this can be done. 
Will we need God's deliverance? I suspect so. We're going to need him to deliver us from the northern army? Absolutely. But he said he would if we would obey him and serve him. What chance do you and I have? Look at us. If the Russians and the Chinese and the, all their allies come into this country and overrun it, this looks like a real strong fighting force we got here, right? Some of us are getting where we couldn't even pick up a gun, much less aim it. So how are we going to protect ourselves? We can't. We'd be overrun in a flash. What about our neighbors? If they're without food, and if we have some, can we protect ourselves against two or three or four hundred people who are coming to get everything we got and got guns and knives to do it? I don't think so. Can you use a gun, Gene? Can you think you can handle a submachine gun? I doubt it. <laughs> We're helpless. We're hopeless. Just as Israel was hopeless before Pharaoh's army. They weren't armed. That army was coming with chariots, swords, and spears. They were absolutely helpless, and God opened the sea. When Israel crossed the Jordan, they were pretty well hopeless and helpless, and God caused the walls of Jericho to fall down just with the blasting of trumpets and a shout. And the walls came tumbling down. Gideon and his 300 men had their part to play, did they not? They had to hold up some pitchers of oil that were burning and shout. Now that we might could accomplish. That's about all. But God caused those Assyrians to turn on each other and kill each other. Gideon and the men all had to do was stand up on the hill and watch. Now, God can deliver. God has delivered. I used the example last week of Elisha and the guy that didn't believe. How, you know, how can we handle this? And God said, let him see. And all of a sudden, he saw all these chariots of fire with angels all around. Oh, now I see. Let's not harden our hearts. Let's realize we're still the people of God. And he's called us, he's given us his truth, he's given us understanding, and if we will do our part, he's promised that he will deliver us. Verse 11, because he erred, he said, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest, into the promised land. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. A heart of unbelief. We have to believe. Well, it's not just a matter of knowing God's there. It's not just a matter of knowing He could do something. It is a matter of believing that He will do something. I don't want to live this life down here all these years and then have an attitude of, well, I know God could resurrect me, but I don't think He will. Now, where does he get his incentive to resurrect me if I don't even believe him? See, this has got to be a personal belief. It's not just God can save the church. 
You need to come to understand and believe with all your heart that God can and will save you personally in spite of yourself. We always have to add the in spite of myself. But can God raise our level of understanding and through His Spirit give us a heart of belief and faith? Now, that didn't come easy to Abraham and Sarah, did it? You're going to have a baby. <laughs> right. But they came to believe it. They came to understand it. And then it happened. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So he's telling us here that we need to talk to each other. We need to exhort one another, to encourage and remind one another. That's why I'm giving this series of sermons. is so that we might be reminded and exhorted and you know, to remember what we're here for and to remember who God is and what he can do. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. <laughs> partakers in what he went through, the sorrow, the suffering, the trials, the tribulations, all those things he went through, we are going through as well. But he maintained belief and faith in God all the way through, and he is sitting at the right hand of God. Now, he partook what we are, and he says we will partake of what he is. He's sitting at the right hand of God, and we will be his bride sitting in his hand. We'll be on the same level as Christ and the Father. Ye are gods. And that's not blasphemy. Paul, I think it was Paul, even said that it's not blasphemy to be considered to ultimately become God. The contrast bothers us because we're so far from it. But that doesn't mean we can't understand. That's what our purpose is. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Listen to what he has to say. Listen to what Paul is saying about him here. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, albeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with him that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So if they had believed... They would have entered, but they wouldn't believe. So we've got to believe. It's got to be personal. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It wasn't just sin. It was their disbelief and unbelief and lack of trust in God that led them to go ahead and sin. If we have deeply entrenched in our minds and emotions that we are here for the purpose of becoming God and reigning with Christ, that helps keep us from sinning because it gives us vision of the future and what we can be. 
and therefore gives us impetus to control ourselves, not to give in to temptation and sin, and to serve him. <clears throat> it's the unbelief that causes the problem. Well, I'm not going to make it anyway, so I might as well do this or that. You know, that's not going to get you anywhere. Let's go on into chapter 4. Let us therefore fear. Fear is a good emotion, if used properly. Fear can be debilitating. It can cause us to freeze up and do nothing. Or fear can be a great motivation to do good. So he said, let us fear. Now, we don't like fear, do we? But on the other hand, let's understand the right kind of fear is good. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. <coughs> Let us fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Wouldn't it be a tremendous shame for you and me to have gone through having our minds opened, beginning to understand God's ways, His purposes, and then put in 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of struggling against human nature and trying to be a part of the kingdom of God and then come short of it. What a waste. So he said, don't waste it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as to them. Moses told them that they could go to the promised land. All you had to do is obey God. They wouldn't do it. Moses was talking to deaf ears. Sometimes that is true today. Why did Paul call it the foolishness of preaching? Because people hear, but they don't do. They don't believe. They don't get it. So the gospel was preached to them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Now, I can talk about this for an hour, but it doesn't do a bit of good unless you take it to heart and you walk out this door later today and you are more determined to believe God and believe that he is able to save you from yourself, that he's bigger than you, far bigger. And if you don't get in the way, he'll save you. says he will. You've got to have faith mixed with the preaching and the understanding. <laughs> faith is a belief in something you can't see. It's an assurance that God will deliver if you'll do what he tells you. Now, if you have a strong, fully motivated belief, you're going to have a better chance of succeeding, aren't you? Let me think about, let's say when I was a kid about this tall. My dad would tell me, go out and get the grass burrs out of the lawn. You get all those grass burrs out of that lawn. To me, that seemed like an absolutely interminable, impossible chore because that's one thing we could grow better than Bermuda grass. 
Now, I didn't have much hope, faith and hope, and I didn't have much desire either, to tell you frankly, to do that job. I hated it. Didn't want to do it. Now, he might have been able to help me had he offered me a reward. He might have said, son, when that lawn is free of grass burrs, I'm going to get you a new bicycle. Not only that, but I have enough confidence in you that I'm, a, I'm even going to go ahead and buy that bicycle and I'm going to set it here on the porch and chain it down. And you're not getting that bicycle until that yard is completely weeded. Now, God's offered us salvation. And he went ahead and sent his son here, the bicycle on the porch, if you will, to lead a perfect life and show us the way. So we have an example of what will happen if we're faithful and believe. Because he is, again, sitting at the right hand of God. He's the bicycle on the porch there. Now, do we believe it? He did it. He died. He was resurrected. He went there. And he said, I'm the captain of salvation. You can have the same thing. Now, is that mixed with belief in our hearts and minds? Or is it just a, eh, yeah, sure. I'll never make it. Got to believe him. <clears throat> Verse 3, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath that they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. What he did for us was create a 7,000-year plan for mankind to be God. Through the first 6,000 years, Satan would be here, to detain us, to restrain us, to tempt us, to keep us from it. And then there would be a Sabbath of rest for a thousand years when Satan will be bound. He cannot influence mankind. And the kingdom of God will be here on this earth. And most people will respond to God and be saved. So what he did was he spoke of a certain day, the Sabbath day, the seventh day of creation. Seventh day on the Gregorian calendar, though nobody recognizes it and keep the first day or Wednesday or Friday, whatever they decide to do. But the Sabbath day is so important. Do we grasp that? It pictures the millennium with Christ and the Father here on the earth, Christ ruling the earth with a rod of iron, and us ruling with him a thousand years. The Sabbath, every week, is to remind us that the kingdom of God is coming, and Christ will be reigning on earth, and us with him. That's why he tells us, don't take the Sabbath for granted. 
Remember there in Isaiah 58 where he tells us that we are to fast, that we are to fast with the right attitude, that we are to be willing to give and serve others. And then down further on, when he says he'll begin to bless us, he says, don't put your foot on the Sabbath. Keep your foot off it. We're not to do any work on the Sabbath. We're to honor God. We're not even to think our own thoughts on the Sabbath, but think godly thoughts. We're not working. We're not doing business. We're not doing the other things of life on the Sabbath. We're not watching television. We're not reading novels. We're not playing golf. We're not doing those things on the Sabbath because it's holy time. Set aside to worship God. To focus on God and our purpose and the reason we're here on this earth. So we have every week, one day, set aside to remind us of the goal of reigning with Christ a thousand years in the millennium. And that's why he makes the Sabbath so important there in Isaiah 58. Because if we lose sight of the fact of what we are and who we are, and don't keep the Sabbath properly, then we will lose focus on our goal and our purpose on earth, the kingdom of God. That's why this day is so very, very important. It's why you can't keep Wednesday or Sunday or Friday, because the seventh day pictures the millennium, the thousand years of Christ's reign. And it's the only day that does. If you keep Sunday, that's the first day of the week. What did that what did that do? Well, about the end of a thousand years of man on the earth, everybody was drowned, except eight. You want to keep Wednesday? Let's see, it would be uh, one, two, three, four and a half days into the creation if a thousand years is a day. What's that going to get you? Sabbath's the one that pictures the kingdom of God. Seventh day is so very, very important. Sunday keeping will not get you any closer to the kingdom of God than the mafia is. Verse 5, And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. So he's saying the millennial rest is pictured by the weekly Sabbath. Just as they would enter into the promised land, but they had to wander 40 years and their carcasses die, and the next generation went in. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. And God says, somebody's got to be in the kingdom. I've got to have 144,000 for a bride for my son. I need teachers. I need people to help Christ rule, to reign a thousand years. So somebody's got to be there. And those that wouldn't listen the first time it was preached by Moses aren't going to be there. They're waiting for the second resurrection. But somebody's got to be there. So he says, how about you? Why not you? That's what he's implying. Well, I'm saying the same thing reading it today. Why not you? Again, he limits a certain day. It's limited to a certain day. It can't be any day but the seventh day. And even the world on the calendar still recognized Saturday as the seventh day. It's never been changed. But they worship on the first day. 
God said do the seventh, so they do the first. That's just the way humans are. Saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Emmanuel had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. Today is a day of salvation. <clears throat> so what happened in the wilderness and the promised land wasn't the last opportunity. We have opportunity to go into the promised land, the kingdom of God. There, there therefore remains a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. So every Sabbath day is a picture of the millennium. It's a reminder of the millennium. And we should do everything we can on the Sabbath day when there are no other pressures on us to conduct that day and our lives and our thinking on that day as Christ would conduct the kingdom of God in the millennium. It's practice for that thousand-year period. It's practice for us to become the right kind of teachers, kings, and priests during that thousand years. <clears throat> Christ will not watch football or basketball or documentaries about the sex lives of fleas on the Sabbath. It's entertainment for the self. We are to be holy and conduct the Sabbath without our own thoughts, without our own thinking, without our carnal, normal goals and hobbies and thoughts. That's the purpose of it. It's a picture of the kingdom of God. What do you want in the kingdom of God? Lust, vanity, jealousy, envy, greed, and lust? Do you want the works of the flesh? Do you want the thoughts of vanity and ego and selfishness? All through the kingdom of God? Why have the kingdom of God if it's going to be just like it is today? So, to us, the Sabbath ought to be a whole lot different than Sunday or Wednesday or Friday. It ought to be a totally different day with a totally different attitude, a whole different approach to the Sabbath than we have any other day. A day to guard our thoughts even more closely, a day not to fulfill our own desires and purposes, but to direct our thoughts toward the purposes of God. It's hard to do when you're working, hard to do when you're trying to make a living and keep the house clean and the garden growing and all those things six days a week. But the Sabbath, he says, Hey, it's set aside. You can't do anything else. So devote it to me. Try to make it as close to the millennium as you can get it to the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Verse 11, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the example of unbelief. See, when you're celebrating the millennium in the kingdom of God every week, it should strengthen your belief. It should give you more hope. It should give you power to overcome and to grow. The Sabbath should be devoted to spiritual goals and purposes, to helping us 
and battling with our human nature the rest of the week. So let's not disbelieve because we have the Sabbath as a day set apart to strengthen our belief. There is no purpose in us sitting here reading these words today unless it strengthens our hope and our purpose and our belief. We might as well sit at home. But God has ordained that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that we are to come together to exhort one another. That's even toward the end of the book of Hebrews itself, chapter 13. So that we might be reminded, so that we might not begin to drift. It helps us focus. Uh, <clears throat> verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a, dis and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God ponders our hearts, he says, and his spirit is able to discern our hearts and minds. We can't read each other's hearts. We can't read each other's minds even. But God can. And he knows if it's a sham or lip service or hypocrisy or whether we truly, sincerely are seeking to obey God with all our heart. He knows the difference. So he says when the Sabbath comes, you're to be laboring to purify, to strengthen your heart and your mind and your belief. It's a time that you can devote to that. Now, of course, we should devote our hearts and minds and thoughts to God through the week. But we do have other things that distract us and we have to do. But the Sabbath is there as a picture of the millennium and there's nothing else to do. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You won't fool him. You won't deceive him. You might deceive yourself, but you won't deceive him. He knows who those are who are giving lip service and those whose hearts are where they need to be. He knows the difference. So he is all-seeing. He is all-knowing. He is all-discerning. You can't hide. You can't run. So, do what? Believe, obey, serve, give. Put God first. So, he is able to know everything. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Emmanuel, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Doesn't he say not to let anyone take your crown? Now, God is preparing crowns for his people. It says there in Malachi 3 that if we're exhorting one another and reminding one another and talking of these things, and these are the things that are on our mind, he'll remember us when he makes up the crowns. That's what he's saying here. We have him as a high priest. And he's passed into the heavens. And we need to hold fast our profession, not let anybody take it away, talk about it, remind each other, help each other to hold fast, to endure to the end, not to give up, 
not to begin to disbelieve or drift away, but hold on tight. The example of Jacob I'm reminded of when it says hold fast. And when he was wrestling that night with Christ, he would not turn loose. Now, he, he was fighting a stronger foe, but he wouldn't turn loose. And by morning, Christ just touched his hip. That's all he had to do. And either broke it or disabled it or put it out of joint or whatever happened because apparently Jacob limped the rest of his life as a reminder. But he hung on. And Christ even said, you've prevailed not with man, you've prevailed with God. Now, we've got to prevail with God. Hang on with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And don't let these things slip away. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Don't be in despair. Don't half believe or, unheart- or but believe wholeheartedly knowing that he can be touched with our feelings. But was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. <clears throat> so when we go to God and say, I have been fighting this, I am tempted, I need your help, I need your strength, I need your, and if we give in, I need your forgiveness, yet again, have mercy on me. And Christ says, you know, I had that same, same temptation every day when I was on the earth. Every day I had the same temptation that person has. So I understand what they're going through. Let's forgive them, Father. Okay. Now, how do we approach God? Whining and mewling and not believing, sort of half-hoping. No. He came here. He suffered. He was tempted. He understands. He knows what we go through. And he has promised to forgive and see us into his kingdom. So how should we therefore approach him? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Approach God boldly. With a lively hope, as Peter put it. If we are praying according to his will... And it is his will that we be in his kingdom. And we're asking for help and forgiveness and mercy. We need to do so boldly. Father, you promised. I've messed up. I sinned. Please forgive me. And then believe that he will. He was willing to forgive all mankind's sins of all people that have ever lived, through Christ himself. You know how many sins that is? Let's say there have been 60 billion people live on this earth, and they each created or sinned or had a wrong thought 10 times, 100 times a day. Multiply 60 billion times 100 times 365, times 70 years, let's say. 
That's quadrillions of sins, way beyond our capacity to even comprehend. And he's able, through his sacrifice, to forgive them all. So do you believe his sacrifice is big enough for your sins? Do you come to him with half belief they'll be forgiven? With half belief that he's hearing? Do you trust in the fact that he was tempted like you are every day of his life and never gave in? That he's therefore capable of seeing your infirmity and forgiving you? That's why he says, come boldly. If you don't come boldly, that means you don't understand the size of his sacrifice and the deep meaning that it has. Yes, humble, meek, realizing how weak you are, but bold in knowing that any sin can be forgiven, even yours, even mine, all of us, because his sacrifice is that big. He will be able, before it's done, to forgive the sins of all who have lived. A few will go into the lake of fire with weeping and gnashing of teeth, but not very many, because God is able to save. Well, if he's able to save most of six billion, I think you can be saved too. So just admit it, accept it, and get on with it, and be bold in asking for forgiveness and mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. Unmerited pardon. We can solicit pardon and forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice. That's what it was for. It's the only reason he came to this earth. Was to live perfectly so that our sins could be forgiven in his death. And we could be made alive in his resurrection. It's the only purpose. So do you believe in that purpose? Do you accept that purpose in your behalf? Or do you go around thinking, oh, I guess I'm not going to make it? Well, when you're in that attitude, it's an awful lot hard, harder to overcome. But when you believe, and you know, in faith and in strong hope, that you'll be in the kingdom of God, you'll come a lot less likely to getting that bicycle. Or a lot more likely, I meant to say, to I say less. So let's believe in the sacrifice of our Savior. Let's believe it in view of our own lives. And hold fast that which we believe and not let anybody take our crown, but make sure God makes it up for us.